Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series at the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Clem, one of the editorial fellows this year. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Bernard Dreyer, professor of pediatrics at NYU, the past president of the AAP, and one of the authors on AAP's new 2021 guidelines on the evaluation and management of febrile infants. This guideline has been a long time coming and will certainly impact pediatricians everywhere. Dr. Dreyer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Dreyer, we've come a long way from the early days of febrile neonate management. Can you give the listeners a synopsis of how the epidemiology of neonatal infections have changed with time? And in 2022, what are the most common causes of fever in neonates and what are the most serious? Sure. So most people recognize that there's a very significant changing bacteriology. First of all, group beta strep screening has decreased the number of children with group beta strep. And therefore, now actually E. coli is the most common cause of bacteremia. In addition, the pneumococcal vaccine has really eradicated most, if not all, pneumococcus as a cause of fever in young infants, even though they may not get their first vaccine at two months of age, it has really dramatically decreased the amount of pneumococcal germs in the environment. Listeria is also now very, very rare. And so there's been a very significant change in the bacteriology. And because most causes of bacteremia are now gram-negative rods, the absolute neutrophil cell count is less accurate because of gram-negative organisms. And so that we have switched to C-reactive protein, and especially procalcitonin as important markers of inflammation. I should say that the most common cause of fever in young infants is still viral. We now have many viral panels that we do on every child that's admitted for fever or in the emergency room. And we find not only one, but often several positive viruses on those panels. Got it. Thank you for that overview. Going back to the guideline, this is the first guideline that the AAP has put out on this topic with planning starting over two decades ago. What were some of the unique challenges in putting together this guideline? Yes. So I actually became involved in 2017 when it seemed like we were not going anywhere fast. And the major reason is the the concept of risk tolerance which we talk about in the guideline. So, I mean, some people do not have any risk tolerance for one episode of meningitis in 10,000 kids. So therefore you would do everything on every kid. Other pediatricians would have much higher risk tolerances. So I think the getting together and saying, okay, we know a lot more about the incidence of bacteremia and meningitis we can actually think about what the risk is for these kids. And therefore, we brought together a group that eventually came to consensus on that. At the beginning, there were people in general pediatrics that had much lower risk tolerances than people in infectious diseases. But together, we worked together to come to look at the science, really. And we're lucky to have many more studies now that look at the incidence of bacteremia and meningitis. 
The other challenges are the concept of well-appearing. We know from studies that some children are in the intermediate appearing level when pediatricians have judged well-appearing, sick-appearing, and indeterminate or in-between. So there are not insignificant children where we're not sure. And of course, this guideline is for well-appearing children. Also, I think the other issue is level of training. So often people working up babies in the emergency room may not be that familiar with children that in community emergency rooms. They may be general emergency room physicians who have had some training in pediatrics, but not so secure about their judgments. And so that was another challenge. And we decided we would make one guideline, but of course, the guideline is flexible and people can do more or less based on their risk tolerance or feeling of security. Yeah, I love that you guys thought about all the different levels of learners and different settings in which these kids might present. So kudos to you guys for being very inclusive and thinking broadly. Now to dive into the recommendations specifically, it looks like the recommendations for the most vulnerable group, the youngest infants, reflects current standard practice. We're still going to perform urine testing, lumbar puncture, and admit to the hospital for antibiotics. Do you have any additional comments on these infants? I think basically the risk of bacteremia and meningitis is too high for any of our risk tolerances and much higher than the 22 to 28 and 29 to 60 day olds. And in addition, in the first couple of weeks of life, what is well appearing, we're less secure in our ability to determine who looks well appearing and who doesn't, even if you're an experienced pediatrician. We can't look at it in this podcast, but there is figure four in the guidelines, which looks at the difference in bacteremia rates between 8 to 21-day-olds, 22 to 28-day-olds, and 29 to, I guess, 56-day-olds, because that's what the study looked at. And we looked at five of four different large epidemiological studies and in addition, combined the results of those. And it is very clear that the highest risk group is the 8 to 21-day-olds. It really drops after that in the 22 to 28-day-olds, and it drops further in the 29 to 56-day-olds. So that was really the basis of keeping the youngest group where they are now, which is you work up, you completely work them up and treat them and hospitalize them. And then starting to loosen our concerns and allow more leeway, including sending them home or not doing an LP starting at 22 days old in the fourth week of life. Great. You alluded to this already, but in the guidelines, 22 to 28 day olds are now separated out because their risk of invasive infections are lower. Which of these infants might we not start antibiotics on? And as you mentioned, some of them can be sent home. So can you comment on which ones we can discharge home? So if they have a normal CSF, not an uninterpretable CSF, which 
as all pediatricians know, many of the LPs, the lumbar punctures we do, do not yield interpretable CSF. But if we are lucky to get a non-traumatic LP and we have no pleocytosis, I think those kids can be sent home for observation if a number of criteria are met, including parents that can come back, a way you can contact the parents, etc. But uh, those kids, you would definitely send home with antibiotics coverage because you'll miss a few of them that have bacteremia. And so we recommend that all of those kids get sent home after getting a IM ceftriaxone or IV, but usually IM ceftriaxone. There are other kids who don't need antibiotics or don't necessarily need antibiotics. So uh, those that have a normal CSF, but are staying in the hospital for observation, and those that don't get an LP, which is an option in this age group if there are no abnormal inflammatory markers. So those kids that don't have an LP, but have therefore normal inflammatory markers and are staying in the hospital, we would not send them home, but you can choose not to cover them with antibiotics in the hospital. Just to sum up the algorithm for 22 to 28-day-old infants, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Dreyer, but the decision to perform an LP depends on the inflammatory markers that were obtained. So if they are abnormal, then it is advised that pediatricians perform an LP. If they are normal, then the LP could be deferred. The decision to send them home really depends on the results of the LP. So if an LP is performed and is completely normal, as well as interpretable, then they could be sent home, but with the caveat of getting a dose of antibiotics because of potential bacteremia that could be missed. Otherwise, they should be admitted to the hospital. And in that case, because they are being observed in the hospital setting, antibiotics are optional. Does that sound mostly correct now? Yes. Great. And just a few years ago, it seemed like each major city had developed its own protocol for triaging neonatal fevers. As someone who trained in Philadelphia, I'm obviously partial to the Philadelphia criteria. What were some of the weaknesses of these algorithms? So your statement is the major weakness, meaning there were many different algorithms. They were slightly different from each other. And so as a pediatrician or as an emergency medicine physician, or as somebody in practice and family practice, which one was I supposed to follow? And since they were somewhat different from each other, it was unclear which one was the most authoritative. That was the major issue. In addition, many of these were based on smallish studies, not huge epidemiological studies. So your confidence in not missing a sick child was not going to be completely assuaged by the results of those smaller studies. We now have many larger studies, epidemiological studies, but with many, many more children in them. And so we're at a better situation to actually make some more general and perhaps even less onerous guidelines. We also felt that This is such a common and important problem for pediatricians that the AAP 
which provides most clinical practice guidelines to pediatricians should definitely take this on and provide a standardized care to these young infants. Yes, I agree. And certainly this set of guidelines will be very helpful for us. You alluded to this previously too. Not all the children in this older age group greater than 28 days need an LP. Are there specific children that you would still lean heavily toward getting an LP in? I would suspect that many pediatricians faced with a child who has 103 fever and a very high procalcitonin and maybe a very high ANC might feel that they want to cover that child. The only thing I would just add is that the evidence doesn't say you need to do this. And so we don't recommend this in the guideline, but we recognize that this is a guideline and we say at the front of the guideline, as we begin to lay out the recommendations, that these are our best guess at recommendations. And then the individual pediatrician still use their clinical experience and assessment of the child to modify what we're recommending throughout. Great. And that's a perfect segue to the next question, which is for guidelines, we often need to think about who the guidelines were written for and which population it applies to. So it's important to address which kids were excluded from these guidelines. And these included kids with clinical bronchiolitis, as well as post-vaccine fevers. At least in residency, I was taught that these children still warranted a full workup to be conservative. So what do you think about this? Yeah. So again, we're in a better position because of evidence from studies to make different recommendations that when you were a resident were probably valid at that point. So uh, right now, number one, there was a review uh, by Ralston of uh, 11 studies of bronchiolitis that found no cases of meningitis. And other researchers in eight studies reported no cases of bacteremia in bronchiolitis. So therefore, the risk of meningitis and certainly the risk of bacteremia is extremely low in a child who who has bronchiolitis. And we don't require a positive RSV test. We would just say any child who has clinical bronchiolitis would not be in this protocol. You would treat their bronchiolitis. You may have to admit them because of their respiratory status, but not because of fever. And again, most kids with bronchiolitis are probably not less than three weeks of age. And then the reason for excluding children with immunizations is that we know they have very low risk and almost all of them defervesce in 48 hours. But 40% of children who get a vaccine at two months of age will develop a fever greater than 38.0 centigrade. So we would be working up 40% of children at two months of age if we didn't exclude them. And obviously, this seems like major overkill of workup for children who are most, almost always going to defervest within 48 hours. Yes, all that sounds extremely reasonable. My final question is that I had developed a spiel for talking to new parents about neonatal fever. It goes something like, congratulations on your baby. 
a fever in your baby can be a sign of a life-threatening infection. So any temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit should be treated like an emergency and checked out by a doctor. Do you think with this new guideline, any of our anticipatory guidance for families in the neonatal period should change? No, I don't. Uh, We would want these children at least seen by a physician. And in spite of the fact that this has now been published, I still say that that's my anticipatory guidance for families of newborns. The important thing there is that they know that children have so many fevers in early childhood, beyond this two-month period after birth, that most parents may not even understand that they should worry about a hundred and a half fever Fahrenheit or a little over 38 fever in a young infant. So I think it is extremely important to educate new parents, especially, that there's still some risk. And certainly, as we've just discussed in the first three weeks of life, we would probably do the full workup and admit all these kids and treat all these kids. So no, my anticipatory guidance hasn't changed. Dr. Dreyer, any last words? I would just encourage pediatricians, emergency physicians, family physicians to read through this guideline and give us feedback as you're using this guideline, because we would like this to be a living guideline. There were new studies coming out almost every month that modified what we were saying. And I suspect that's going to continue now that this guideline is published. So we would like to know how this works for physicians when they're caring for young infants with fever and tell us if you think we're wrong or tell us if you think we're right or tell us if there's something not clear in our recommendations. That's my ask to those who use it. I mean, the other thing I would love to see, and I've been trying to get somebody to either do for free or pay for is an app so that the average physician can just throw in the numbers and not have to go through these algorithms, especially the 22 to 28-day-old algorithm. We recognize that it's a little complicated to look at, but it's a lot complicated to make these clinical decisions. Yes. And I thank you for inspiring us to all work together to take care of these patients better. Thank you, Dr. Dreyer. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Bernard Dreyer for joining us today to discuss the latest AAP febrile infant guidelines. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Havnick. Curbside Consoles is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.